my line <laughs> welcome back to torch lighters lighting the way for a new generation of theologians my name is justin <laughs> welcome to torch lighters the <laughs> it's always me it's always me welcome to Welcome once again to Torch Lighters, lighting the way for a new generation of theologians. I am your host, Justin Thieland, if you want to know the last name. And <laughs> I am your co-host, Josh, who also shares Justin's same last name because I am his brother. Of the physical. And the spiritual sense. Woo-mates. Fellow sinner and saint. So, uh, yeah, this has been an interesting day so far. <laughs> we also have a guest Yes. Who is the lovely Haley Cheddar? Say hi, Haley. Hi. Sorry, Haley. I forgot about you. <laughs> I don't forgive you. But Jesus says you have to. <laughs> well, um, as you know, we like to share some fun facts about ourselves because we think we're just as interesting as scripture. And very fun. But we also live in the real world and yes, life do. is fun and fun things happen in our lives sometimes. And yep. yeah. So Josh, what's your what's your fun thing? Well, we here at the Torchlighters podcast believe that taxation is theft. Um, nah. Certain taxation. Uh, today, I'm just very peeved in general because the IRS is, well, I was going to say the IRS is on my back, but I'm actually having to get on the IRS's back because they won't give me the money that they stole that they're trying to give back to me, but won't <laughs> let me have. So I was on I was on hold for an hour today trying to get them and it's, this has been a week long ordeal. I just I'm so can I just please have my four hundred dollars back? Like I what do you need for me to prove that I'm me? Like I can give you my finger. I'll I'll send you like a pinky finger or something. <laughs> like just take that. Fun fact. <laughs> that's that's all I got, boss. No, I, no. That's all I got. Okay, well, let's jump into our topic. We're going to be talking about, we're going to be re continuing our series on... Hopefully finishing, finishing up. Yeah, we will be finishing, not hopefully, but it's going to happen today because <clears throat> we're tired of talking about this this soul-sucking black hole called CRT. What, we, uh, what we've been talking about in the past is basically we started out kind of what happened at University of Northwestern slash what's happening in culture, and then we kind of took the past couple of episodes to explain what is CRT, why is it important to be talking about these things, defining our terms those kinds of things. It's going to be really important that you have listened to those episodes and to the greatest degree possible, explore the show notes. You just need to scroll down, watch some of those videos, read some of those books, get a handle on what this is because it's not going away anytime soon. And what we're going to do today is we're going to start actually doing like polemical theology. We're going to start attacking that worldview and trying to take it apart biblically and say, what is wrong with this? We explained it last time. Hopefully the explanation was enough to go Okay, I can see some problems, but now what we're going to do is we're actually going to go to the Bible, we're going to go to biblical Orthodox Christian theology, and we're going to say, okay, what is wrong with this, and why does it lead us to a different theology, and therefore a different worship? Josh, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, man, I just I just want to be done talking about this. <laughs> um, there's so many other topics in the world. and Well, and we've been just hammered by this lately in this realm, and then mm -hmm. like, personal and family relationships and like that's all that anybody ever talks about anymore it's like so how's the petition and it's like uh can we just not anymore like yeah. is that is that okay but well you can't say that you guys didn't really ask for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
but that's good. You know, like like <sighs> we started, we said it in a previous episodes, but like controversy is is what gives the church an opportunity to refine and clarify its doctrine. So this is a perfect opportunity for us to do that, and we're going to do that starting now. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now, there's lots of stuff going on in this text, but what I want to draw out specifically is a couple of things, uh, really two things. So the first thing is that phrase, standard of teaching. That phrase in and of itself should show us that there's a standard of what should be taught and what should not be taught, right? Pretty self-evident from the term standard of teaching. A standard is what you measure something against. And if it falls short of the standard, it's not good enough and you throw it away. If it exceeds the standard, it's good. You keep it, right? Now, we're talking about a perfect standard of God's word here, so you can't exceed the standard. The point is, is that there's there are teachings that are in accords with the standard, and there are teachings that are not in accord with the standard. And that standard is the word of God. Right there, we have an obligation to take all ideas and subject them to the authority of God's word, to evaluate them, to scrutinize them, to see whether or not they stand up to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Second of all, the definition of Christianity is that we have become obedient from the heart to this standard of teaching, that this standard of teaching is not merely just a body of doctrine that we affirm because we have to. It's a body of doctrine that we affirm because we love it, that we are obedient from the heart. We, it, it is a heartfelt love for the scriptures and a heartfelt love for the teachings, the doctrines of the Bible that present us a standard to which we must commit ourselves that's at the core of what Christianity is. Mm. And then in addition to that, not only is there a standard, and not only do we love that standard, but that heartfelt love for that standard issues in obedience. We have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. And that is Christianity. Recently, I was meditating in a blog post of mine. Basically, when you have a theological shift that happens in somebody away from Orthodox Christianity, that's not just a doctrinal problem as though you're changing your opinion. That's actually also a doxological problem, a worship problem, because that new theology will issue in a new set of acts of obedience or in this case, disobedience. Hmm. If they're not in keeping with the standard of teaching, then you can't rightfully call them obedience because then you're not measuring up to the standard. Your theology determines your worship. Doug Wilson said your theology comes at your fingertips. I really like that. And that's exactly what's happening in CRT. What we're seeing is a shift in the thinking of a lot of of evangelicals who have basically done like a really bad mashup. (laughs) Like, you know, like you you hear like two songs that somebody mashed up and you're like, you know, those don't really belong together. (laughs) Um, That's basically kind of like what happened here. You ruin the original. And, and that's what's happened here. But the consequences of that are far more reaching than just you end up with a new set of doctrines. You also end up with a new set of obedience, a new set of commandments, a new religion. And, and that's why it's so important to clarify these things. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take CRT, which we explained the past couple of episodes, and we're going to compare it to the standard of teaching to which we were committed so that we can understand why we should reject it and how we should reject it. 
Let's do it. So I've kind of got a list here of points of critique of this worldview. Okay. Where we should very easily be able to see how it's it's presenting a different religion and therefore a different set of worship, different gospel, standards, and, and ends up presenting a different gospel. Yes. Yeah. So the first point I want to bring up here is the issue of epistemology. Josh, what's epistemology? Epistemology is uh, the study of how we know what we know. That's the most succinct definition that I know of. Yeah, absolutely. So epistemology is just the the study of knowledge. How do we know? what we know, how do we know that we can be certain about what we know, all those kinds of questions. Yeah. Now, if you can remember from last episodes, it was one episode in two parts. Yeah. Um, kind of confusing. We talked, Sorry, everybody. <laughs> we talked about the postmodern epistemology, right? Yeah. So postmodernism has a way of looking at reality and therefore a way of understanding what we know and what we don't know mm-hmm. or what we can know and what we can't know in the case of postmodernism. And in the case of postmodernism, knowledge is defined by the group, right? It's defined by identity. Mm. In postmodernism, knowledge is defined by the community rather than by anything outside of the community. It's subjective, not objective. And that's because, remember, postmodernism says that we do not have sufficient access to objective truth to make any sort of absolute claim to that knowledge. Right. Which means that we can only make provisional statements, which are always culturally constructed, which means that the only thing worth studying in epistemology is power. Power. And how that power is used to control what the truth is. Right. Well... You have to compare that to the Christian understanding of epistemology, which we have epistemological grounding in two things. First of all, we're created in the image of God, which means that we can have a basic understanding of creation that makes sense to us. You know, you come into the world and you don't grow up as a postmodernist, as my toddler is not a postmodernist. She believes that the world is real because she interacts with it as though it's real. <laughs> right. She knows truth. There's certain things that she assumes to be true, and that's because she's created in the image of God. She knows that that's the case because it's innate within her. We're, yeah. we're made like that. She wasn't just one day like suddenly doubting all of objective right, reality. Right, like. right. <laughs> you have to be taught that. You really yeah. do. So first of all, we're made in the image of God, but what that also creates the ability for us to do is to relate to God and to the world around us as mediated by God's revelation. We have, we have a revelatory epistemology. We have an understanding of knowledge that leads us to say that we can have certainty about what's around us, not only because we're made in the image of God, but because God has spoken in his word and we can understand what he says, and therefore we do have reliable access to the world around us. Right. We do have the ability to understand the world objectively and really. If you want texts for this, the scripture talks about how God is truth. The word is truth. And if, the, if God's word is truth, John 17, 17, then we have access to that truth just by opening up the pages of the scriptures. And you can read it and you can understand it. So that's the first issue that I want to raise, the issue of epistemology. That leads into a second issue, which I think is probably the fundamental issue here, which is the related issue of authority. So the first problem that I have is it presents a fundamentally different epistemology. It has a a different way of understanding the universe. But then secondly, if you have a different way of understanding the universe, that presents a different set of authorities. And of course, the related, the the issue of authority is who gets to say, you know, who says, (laughs) by what standard? Who gets to determine what you can do? Who gets to determine the rules? Who gets to determine also what you can and cannot know? And who made that? And 
they'll say that there are no universals, but that in and of itself is inconsistent in itself because it's presenting itself as the authority. Yeah, that's a universal statement to say that there are no universal statements. Yeah. When you go and you propose the, this whole idea that there's this systemic power structures and all those other things that, that happen in society to oppress the, the minorities in society, that's a statement of authority. And the people who are stating that upon the authority are, well, ultimately in CRT, ends up being the minorities. Yeah. So it, it ends up being that CRT carries with it its own set of authoritative claims and its own structure of authority where you need to listen to this. And if you're not listening to this, you're being rebellious against that authority, et cetera. There's no neutrality in here. You're, you, when you reject God, you have to set up something else in his place. And because of that, you always are going to end up with a different religion, yeah. right? Which is what we started out talking about. In Christianity, obviously, we claim that God is the source of knowledge. God is the authority in these things, and he gets to determine what reality is, how we interact with it, how we can know it, whether or not we can have certainty. God makes the rules. And of course, verses where in scripture where it talks about God is the king. He's the creator. Go and read Isaiah 42 through 49 and be convinced of this. He creates the heavens and the earth. He determines the end from the beginning. He is the king of the universe. He sits in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. All these other scriptures that teach that God is king. God has authority over, over everything. That leads to a third issue, which is that of redefinition. These are three related points. So epistemology, what do I know? Authority, who determines what I can know? And then the issue of redefinitions, the issue of redefining words. Mm. If you believe that you have the authority to determine what knowledge is and what you can know and how you can know it, then you also believe that you have the authority to define and redefine language at your whim. Yeah, it was uh, the beginning of the school year at Northwestern. I participated in a train, August training before the school year, and our theme was redefined. And I was like, okay, all right, so what are we doing? Are we pretending our definitions are as Play-Doh and we're just going to play with them until we, we like what we see? You know, like, mm -hmm. what are we doing? You know, and they were on our masks, this little, little redefined on your on your jawline. You know, I'm like, I got to wear this thing inside out. I'm not, I'm not about <laughs> redefining things. How about we go back to the definitions yeah. that are already laid out in God's word? So, yeah, I don't know. That whole concept kind of hits home for me because of that. Right. Just think about how that's consonant with authority. If we are the authority, we get to use language however we want we imbue language with its meaning. Mm -hmm. But if God is the authority, then God gets to fill in language with meaning. And he does that through reality. Yeah. That language is descriptive of what's around us. We can look at a fork and point at a fork and say, fork, that's a fork. <laughs> you can call it whatever you want, but it still refers to that thing. I've always wondered how somebody said, oh, that's a banana, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, how did they come up with the word? Yeah, like, <laughs> sure. you know what I'm saying? It's that whole idea. Because I think, it, I think it, it plays into that. Like, how do they define these things and assign those meanings? I mean, I have that question about every word in the English language. Banana is the one that I've thought about. But, like, mm -hmm. how do they get there? And a lot of the times they don't even explain that because it's about their experience and you can't understand it. Yeah. So if it works with, like, physical objects like forks, bananas, you know, et cetera, that also works with metaphysical objects. Love, honor, justice racism you know, like the you define reality according to reality yeah and if god determines what reality is then god controls the usage of language which means that if god is the authority in our worldview then we have to use language the way that he determines that we use language which right. is modeled for us in the scriptures whereas in postmodernism 
our usage of language is fluid, unfixed, malleable, yeah. and gets to be used for whatever ends we deem necessary. Right. Even when like in languages, like we have hundreds of languages on the planet, but the reason that we can make translations is because words mean what they mean. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you remove that word equals definition, then you're, you're just, you're lost. Yeah. And what you should hear in all this is that knowledge, authority, language, these are all linked concepts yeah. where any attempt to redefine terms is ultimately a claim to authority. Mm. I get to determine my reality because I get to define the way I use my language the way I want to. Mm. And that you just do not get to do that. That is not something that is acceptable to God. You define your terms according to his dictionary. So those, those are the three related issues of epistemology, authority, and, and just redefining our words. Pause. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, this is an awesome discussion. Love it. Okay, so fourth of all, the destruction of personal responsibility. Okay, now this is almost ironic because this comes from the fact that postmodernism and CRT ultimately destroys the individual, which is actually really counterintuitive because you think that there's so much focus on the individual identity mm -hmm. with identity politics that you'd think that it would establish the individual rather than destroy the individual. No. <laughs> right? <laughs> You would think that that's the case, but postmodernism actually destroys yeah, it does the opposite of that. both the individual and the universal aspect of human persons that we call the image of God. It's a repudiation of both the individual and the universal. And then you're just left with a communal. Right. That's the only thing that's left. Yeah. The individual is no longer a concrete individual person. Like, I'm no longer Justin. I'm no longer me. Instead, what I am is I'm just the composite makeup of all of my intersecting straight white whale identity groups. Straight right? white whale. <laughs> <laughs> and that is definitional of who I am, regardless of what I actually personally do. Isn't it interesting, though, because they focus, like you said, on people's individual experience, right? What such and such person with such skin color has encountered during certain situations. But then they also lump it all together and they say things like the black experience. Right. And you got to listen really closely when people who subscribe to this worldview speak about this, because what they'll say is like me as a fill in the blank. I'm speaking as a black person. I'm speaking as a straight person. I'm speaking mm. as a female. Happens a lot. Like that language is nonsense because you're, you're like trying to speak out of an identity group on behalf of the identity group. And then you become just part of that group. And yeah. that group defines who you are based off of the consensus according to theory. And there, now we're back to the authority issue. And then you interpret everything that happens to you through the lens of that. And so then that becomes your individual experience, but it's the black experience becomes your individual experience and you see everything through that lens. Right. And then people who don't fit that paradigm, people like Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, who yeah. reject that very- Vody Bauckham. Vody Bauckham. Other people, the person that you wrote the article about on The Sun. Yeah. The couple from Lakeville, Minnesota, who stood up and said that they were here to speak for the millions of black Americans who don't support Black Lives Matter. Right. That what they would say is that, you know, well, you're not you're not really representative of the community. You're a race traitor, you know, yeah. and that's because they're defining the individual according to the group. It's de it's destroying the individual. 
but it also destroys the universal identity of human beings being created in the image of God. Because now we don't have anything in common. There's nothing in common between the white experience and the black experience, according to that worldview. There's nothing in common between the female experience and the male experience, mm. because there's no universal, underlying, unifying narrative of the image of God anymore. You're not made in the image of God. What defines you is the group, not the image of God. And that is something that, again, that's a huge, glaring, gaping hole in this whole idea, is that it's destroying the individual. And what happens is that if you destroy the individual, you destroy personal responsibility. Mm. Because if I am just the intersectional makeup of all of these different identity groups, then I am not really responsible for my actions because I'm just the product of the group. I'm just the product of these impersonal forces that are coming on me, making me do what I otherwise wouldn't have chosen to do or what I don't want to do. Obviously, if you destroy personal responsibility, you destroy faith, you destroy repentance, and ultimately you undermine the gospel. You undermine the ability for anybody to, to come to faith and repentance in Christ. In our petition, we say that sin is the individual's willful rebellion against God, which must be repented of by the individual or face the consuming wrath of God. Romans 2, 14 through 16 and other verses. The individual's willful rebellion, which requires the individual's repentance. Right. You can't repent for a group. You can only repent for you. And this is what makes those pastors that you hear about who go and repent before black churches for the, you know, the white group, you know, like, or however it wants to actually play itself out. That's just nonsense. You can't repent for a whole group unless the whole group has sent you as a representative of that group. You can't do that. It's just not possible according to biblical definitions. One of the reasons for signing on our petition was uh, our letter. One individual writes this, I am concerned that many students are still not able to rightly have strong convictions about matters would be very vulnerable to this dangerous teaching referring to critical race theory. Therefore, I, among other older students, as well as Christian, who happens to be black, are concerned with the low view of biblical inerrancy and inspiration. So when you destroy the individual, then somebody... Like that, you know, somebody who holds that view is immediately just disregarded, done away with. Because you can't think for yourself. You have to think for the group. It's not quite as black and white as some people would like to make it seem. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) No jokes. (laughs) So moving on to the next point of critique here. Number five, the deconstruction of the community and the unity of the church. Okay, so you have the destruction of personal individual responsibility But CRT also, when it comes into a church, destroys the community of the church, like the communion of the church, because it destroys the unity of the church. Hmm. Isn't that their whole thing is unity and being being one and (laughs) Revelation 9 and that whole thing? Right. But it's unity according to theory, unity according to error. Hmm. It's unity according to how they define unity, not unity according to how the scriptures define unity. Community is built on unity. Community is built on unity. You've heard of the the purity versus unity dichotomy that people like to throw out there, right? I remember when it comes to the church. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the first classes that I went to at Bethel, they posed that question. You know, if you could choose between having unity and purity in the church, which would you choose? Initially, I was like, well, if you forced me to choose, I would say purity, but that's only because. Purity creates unity yeah, a, when we all agree, you know? yeah. and that was eventually what I ended up saying in the class is that you're forcing us to make a choice that the Bible doesn't force us to make. Yeah. Purity of doctrine creates unity within the church, and that unity is based off of the truth. 
purity is what creates unity and unity is what creates community. And of course, the text that I always think of when I think of unity is Ephesians chapter four. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. Okay. And then it's verse four. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Basically, the idea of that passage is that unity is the purchased possession of the church. It's purchased by Christ. It's given to us in the Spirit. It is according to the faith, the one faith, which is, I think, the body of truth, expressed in one baptism because we all have one Lord. The church is unified, but the church is unified because the church is pure. That's like the definition of the church. The, the church is a bride who is washed white by the water uh, of God's word. That's out of Ephesians 5. 5, yeah. So unity is the purchased possession of the church, which then it comes to express itself in speaking the truth in love, which is later on in that same, that same passage. And skip forward to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, building up Christ's body, okay, until we attain to the unity of the faith, the unity of the faith, the unity that's expressed in the faith, the body, the standard of teaching that we started out talking about. Not just a faith, yeah, the faith. Yeah, this is not your subjective faith, the unity of your faith, you know, your believing in Christ. It's the unity of the standard of teaching because that's connected to the ministries of the apostles who gave the revelation, the prophets who gave the revelation, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers who exist now who are the people who teach that. And as they teach that faith, they build up the body into the unity of the faith. Um, to the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind and wave of doctrine. The definition of this maturity, this building up of the body of Christ into the unity of the faith is defined by not being blown here and there by every single wave of doctrine and philosophy that blows through the church. Mm. There's a stability that comes with knowing the word of God being able to say that's wrong, that's an error, and that is part of what preserves the unity of the church. Yeah. And then in addition to that, he says, rather, instead of being blown about, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Yeah. As we come to the word and as the word purifies us, we more fully express the unity that is already ours. Could you say that maturity begets purity begets unity? Yeah, or purity begets maturity begets unity, uh, in I think might work as well. Yeah, and that that unity produces a community like fellowship, right? Which produces worship, right? Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a corporate reality, not just an individual reality. Now, this is very different. This is very different than critical race theory because, according to critical race theory, unity can only be achieved if one part of the group shuts up and listens and believes the other part of the group. Yeah. Which is not unity because it's not based on any objective word. It's not based on the faith. Unity is eventually destroyed in the church because one group gets to basically trample over all of the other groups in what it says. 
because right. they just need to be listened to and believed because they have a special access to truth that the rest of them don't. Yeah, CRT, it manufactures a disunity and then profits off of that disunity, yeah. basically what it does. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Point six here, there's also a redefinition of sin. Okay, so there's a huge redefinition of sin happening in CRT. In the Christian religion, <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> we have to make that distinction it is. now. In the Christian religion, and this is a religion that we're fighting against here, sin is defined as, well, I mean, depends on kind of which aspect of sin you're talking about. There's original sin, which is this, the stain of sin that lies on each and every one of us. But then there's the individual acts of sin that each one of us do as an expression of that depraved nature. And that sin, built on that personal responsibility that we have before God as his creation made in his image, that sin becomes the thing that you're accountable to God for. Now, you're still in CR in, in the CRT Christian mashup religion, which is a different religion. Yeah. Sin is no longer defined as that personal responsibility that you have before God. It's your group responsibility, or it's based off of your social situation in society. So sin, for instance, okay, so like, let's just use the, the example of like racism, right? The sin of racism is no longer an individual act of the heart expressed in actions or attitudes against somebody partially on the basis of their skin color. Ethnic partiality is the definition of the scriptural definition of racism. Now it has to do with the system. It doesn't have to do with personal responsibility. It has to do with group responsibility. Mm. It's a redefinition of sin to the point where now you're no longer personally responsible. Your group is responsible and you're responsible by proxy. Right. So sin is therefore not something that you can individually repent of. And even according to the system, you can't end up repenting of it anyway. Right. <laughs> what the upshot of this is as well is that you have certain people who cannot commit certain sins. For instance, racism. You you have the definition of power plus prejudice equals racism. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. Thanks, Jamar Tisby. Yeah, it's it's not necessary to have power in order to be a racist. Yeah. Because you can be racist without power. It's just that you can't do anything about it, right? Mm -hmm. You can be racist and have power, and that's probably worse. Yeah. But like the point is that if you define it that way, there are whole groups of people who cannot commit a certain sin. It's impossible. Which consequently, if you do that, you put them outside of the realm of possibility of being redeemed because they can mm. never repent of that sin because they're never convicted of that sin. Mm. Whoa. Which is really destructive side effect of all this. Yeah. Okay. That leads into point seven, which is the redefinition of the atonement. If sin no longer belongs to the individual, but belongs to the group, then Christ no longer dies for individuals, but he dies for groups, which is why you have the black liberation theology yeah. which says that the whole point of Jesus Christ's death was not to bear the wrath of individual believers who put their faith in him so that they can be reconciled to God and their debt is paid and, and all those kinds of things, the doctrines of penal substitutionary atonement. Now, Christ is dying not for the sake of atoning for sin and satisfying wrath, but Christ is dying because in order to um, identify with oppressed people groups. Yeah. He, he identifies, and, and Christ is no longer in this sense the savior, Christ is the liberator. Mm. You know, he's not the person who saves me from my sin, he's the person who sets me free from oppression. Yeah. Right. And that's a redefinition of the atonement work that Jesus did. Right. Jesus came to offer his life as a sacrifice for sin, not to set us free from our oppression. Mm. 
And and that making some people mad with that statement. <laughs> but it's biblical. Point me to the chapter and verse where anywhere in scripture the primary goal that God has in his salvation work is to set people free from oppression here and now. Right. And even he was explicitly like, no, that's not why I'm here. Because the Jews were like, Yay, we have a savior who can save us from Rome and all the oppression in Texas and stuff. And then he's like, What? <laughs> like, that's not why I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm here to set yeah. you free from your oppression from sin. Not from right. from whatever social institution is oppressing you or if it, you think is oppressing you. It's yeah. it's not what this is about. Absolutely. The place that people always go on that side of the camp is to the Exodus, right? Because there's a salvation from slavery. But even that, if you understand the book of Exodus correctly, is not the primary purpose of God liberating Israel from Egypt. That was always meant to be a demonstration of God's power and his ability, and comes to mean later a demonstration of his power to liberate from sin, his power to save from sin, because Mm. the whole undercurrent of Exodus is that Israel has a hard heart and that being saved from Egypt is not enough. (laughs) <laughs> that, that, that they need to still be saved and that even though they have God's law and they have the tabernacle and they have God's presence living among them, they still have a hard heart and they can't be saved unless that hard heart is changed. That's the whole point of the Torah. So if, even if you point to Exodus and you say, well, Exodus is, is a demonstration that God saves his people from oppression, that his, his goal is to liberate people from oppression, that is not the point of Exodus. The point mm-hmm. of Exodus was always that God is setting up a salvation that's greater from sin, which culminates in Jesus Christ. Well, And there's so much attached to that, even the way that the word Exodus is used in the New Testament as well. But yeah, I think you just opened up another, like, three more podcast episodes <laughs> right there. So thanks. So it's a redefinition of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the atonement lies at the heart of the gospel, and that means that you're changing the gospel. You really are. You're presenting a different way of salvation. Which leads me to my eighth and final point, which is that it renders salvation impossible if you follow the CRT road consistently. Salvation in CRT is based on the work of a false Christ according to a system of works righteousness to attain the goal of something that's less than God himself, which is just to be idolatry. An insufficient work done by an insufficient savior according to a system of works righteousness, anti-racism, to attain the goal of a of an ethnic utopia, which God did not promise in his word, which is all to give you something that's less than God, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> it's idolatry. Let me put that on a t-shirt. It, it ends up as idolatry. It, it puts you in a place where you are being presented a different gospel. And that's why we're so concerned about this. Yeah, the way I like to put it is to say that critical race theory, this syncretistic Christian mashup <laughs> is um, it's an eternal treadmill of repentance running with no hope of forgiveness. Yeah. Because if you're white, then you're screwed. The gospel therefore means nothing. Yeah. Which is why our message in all of this is that I, I want to just state this and then maybe we can leave the clarification for another day. But like, if this is the way that you view the world, you need to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins to forgive you of your sins, and he calls you to repentance and faith in him, to obedience to the way of the cross, to take up your cross every day and follow him, to die to yourself daily, to come to the word of God and be shaped and renewed in your mind, to worship the one God the way that that one God tells you you must worship him. Mm. That is what we are calling you to. And there is so much joy and fulfillment and wonder in, in that process. 
you're missing out on if this, if this is what you're sold out to. And that's why we care about this so much. But Josh, closing thoughts. I think it's really easy to talk smack behind a microphone and make bold, well put together statements or not so well put together statements if you're me. But yeah, I think it's it's super easy to talk behind a microphone or write a blog post or something. But if you're not engaging with this topic in your conversations and circles, then you're missing the whole point because minds and hearts are changed when we proclaim the truth and are nailed to it and say, hey, uh, you're in error and scripture calls you to repentance from that error. So we really need to have conversations and engage and let the word of truth be its, its double-edged sword that it is and uh, soften people's hearts. So really just you know, as we close out our CRT dealings, thank the Lord. <laughs> Just take that, take that with you, and uh, talk about it at Thanksgiving, maybe if uh, if you're feeling bold and you want to bring up a topic or a couple cans of worms or whatever. But just talk about it and uh, talk about truth and be encouraged in that truth. Well, with that, we'll see you next time. Adios. See ya. <laughs>